This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Putting mechanics in their place. The War of Jenkins' Ear. Bloody Mary. And nerd troping a found object. where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom, Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Murder of crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the crunch of Doritos, the thump of miniatures, and the beneficent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive on the tabletop tell us we've once more entered the friendly shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut today, we are going to be talking a little more about the game design edge of the hut over there on the shelf where all of the role-playing games we haven't gotten a chance to play are stored against the hope someday that this will be the time we take down Sky Realms of Jorun. <laughs> but in this particular case, we are taking down Sky Realms of Jorun and leaving it down because we're talking about making the mechanics serve the story and not the other way around. Robin, obviously there are two schools of thought on this that, um, uh, the, you, you have a bunch of mechanical play and then story emerges out of it, which I think is sort of a more board gaming, war gaming, tactical gaming sort of approach. And then there is the other half where you have a ideal story experience and you build mechanics to buttress or perhaps even guide that story experience. So why don't you lead us into uh, the sort of second and more artisanal half? What is that? Uh, yes, it's a, this is a fine, crafted, well-aged half of the question. Um, so this uh, thought stemmed from my ongoing process of designing, uh, designing, uh, that's, that's, I guess I was designing because it was a combination of uh, have it, thinking about design after demoing Gumshoe one-to-one for a couple of folks that were uh, hoping to bring along as uh, writers to do follow-up adventures. And so I've had the experience now of running uh, one scenario for uh, three different people at different times, because, of course, it's Gumshoe one-to-one. It's a solo uh, one GM, one player experience each time. And then another scenario for uh, another uh, player who had already read the main scenario. And so especially when you're uh, running something as a demo or, or as a playtest, there's that moment afterwards where the person who's had the experience begins to cogitate upon it. And sometimes the question will arise, did I get to use all of the rulesy things that seem to come up? Or do I want there to be more rules interaction? And this is something that, as you suggest, is going to be uh, feel different for every designer and uh look at the importance of how 
how much rules are supposed to be the thing you are interacting with, or are they supposed to be a tool that allows you to have an experience? And I definitely fall in that second camp, and I feel that a lot of rules that I put into something are a backstop. They're there if you need them, but if they never ever come up and you had fun, that's better uh, than if you uh, had to rely on a lot of uh, rules, or uh, more specifically, you're going to have a better, more coherent, uh, thematically rich experience if you only use the set of rules that you need to tell a particular story. So if, if at the end of it, there were a bunch of uh, mechanical elements that didn't come into play, uh, great, that means you didn't need them. Uh, just like, uh, you know, you wouldn't leave a film and afterwards go, well, you know, they didn't use a wide-angle lens yeah. ever. I really feel like we uh, we left some dolly shot on the ground there. We didn't have any dolly shots. He left out the steady right. cam. That's one of the things that comes into film, and there wasn't in this one. And so I guess my uh, analogy here is that... Uh, the uh, if you get to the end of an experience and then go, well, there really weren't enough rules. That's not really the question. The question is, did you have a good time? Did everything now? If you uh, do get to a patch of story where the, it kind of breaks down and the GM doesn't know what to do and there's floundering about, and you needed a rule, then the designer has failed uh, to do uh, his or her job in that they didn't provide you a backstop for every possible edge case. If you, you know, how do I hit multiple uh, targets? Uh, well, I guess you don't, right? That's a uh, problem, but that doesn't mean that you should design a scenario to go, well, we have rules to hit multiple targets, so we got to make sure that every adventure has a fight in which you might want to hit multiple targets. Um, so that's... Uh, uh, kind of basically uh, my description of a sort of a common pitfall that you can uh, fall into when you're designing things because you can get sort of entranced by the aesthetics of the rules and your desire to interact with the, the rules, especially if they're nice and shiny and elegant. But at the uh, end of the experience, how much you handle the rules is not what people are going to emotionally take away from it. They may intellectually have that question if you invite them to overthink the fun they just had, but that's a, a different issue. Yeah, when I'm uh, designing rules, often you do get that sort of uh, romance of the deep that you were talking about, where you sort of go off in a bunch of different directions and think, oh, this will handle this one edge case that will come up in a thousand uh, games, or this is a really evocative way of doing something that's not really a core activity, and if I spend all these pages talking about how to do it, it uh, will distract from the point of the game as a whole, even though you might, you know, carve that part out and say, this is for a supplement or for a scenario where we can we can actually design a scenario to focus on that one uh, cool rules mechanic that I came up with. Um, I think that we can look at the notion of, and it, certainly in Star Trek, certainly we began with that when we were both doing the icon and the CODA system stuff, and then... Although, I don't think you wound up doing any Coda System stuff, did you? You were doing Lord of the Rings for us, or what were you doing back in the day? Which was the first the one? I didn't do anything for anything? Decipher at all. Okay, all right. So, but anyway, when we were doing Icon, we definitely wanted the um, the rules rather than to support a, a specific story or emotion, but we wanted them to feel uh, experientially like Star Trek, in that they needed to be a little loose, and they needed to be sort of open to... Uh, edge cases in the, in the sense that we wanted to give the GM that sort of Gygaxian confidence that they had something, but they were free to sort of launch into that final frontier and make stuff up like Captain Kirk. And then in Coda, it was more of an all-encompassing rules environment where we wanted to make sure that everything had a place and there was a place for everything because we were covering the whole Megillah. And I think that in a lot of ways, those, those first batch of lug books sort of, uh, you know, uh, could cast a shadow forward onto the gumshoe approach that every gumshoe game is its own game with its own set of dramatic concerns and that the rules, while they may be the same rules engine, will be supporting different aspects of a, of a different kind of a genre story. And I think that one of the things that I, uh, that I always say is that if you say your story is, your game is about X, and there is no mechanical support or consequence for X, 
then you are lying and your game is not about X. Uh, you can say my game is a, is a game about love. And it's like, well, if there's no difference mechanically to a character in love and a character out of love, your game is not about love because it doesn't actually, uh, drive onto the, onto the play. So maybe on, in my approach, I'm a little closer to the story has to emerge from a rules context than your pure, uh, uh, story gaming, uh, we can go through an entire session and never touch right. the dice. And wasn't that a great role-playing game? Well, it was a great, a lot of things, but it might or might not have been a role-playing game, depending. I think I may just have hit upon a fine distinction, Ken. Uh, and that distinction is between rules and mechanics. So you can have a rule that is not mechanical. So for example, if you have a game about love and the uh, character generation rule says you have to write down on your uh, character sheet who you think you might fall in love with, then it's a uh, a light uh, approach to uh, actual rules mechanics and there's no rule mechanic that forces you to act upon your love for those characters, but the uh, act of writing it on your character sheet and perhaps other acts like at the end of each session where you are required to recount uh, how your love relationships change, neither of those is mechanical per se. You're not uh, rolling a die. There's no number involved. But now that, the, that there's a rule that you've been presented with that uh, targets your play in a particular direction. So that would be a rule, but it's not mechanical. There's mm -hmm. a hybrid example in Gumshoe of drives, which uh, become mechanical only when you're doing it wrong. Uh, <laughs> the the drive... Uh, well, sometimes some, you get a reward if you're doing it so right that everything else is wrong. I guess in some versions of, of Gumshoe, yeah. maybe you've added cool things that do that. Uh, so you've turned it into more clearly a mechanic. In Nice Black Agents, if you really follow your drive... Uh, then that can let you refresh, uh, stuff. Right. Because Knights Black Agents needs a richer, uh, uh, point economy than other games. Right. And that's an example of where you've taken one mechanical need and found an interesting, cool thing to plug it into. And you've then made that rule, not just a rule, but also a mechanic. But in, for example, uh, Fear Itself, there's a penalty if you uh, don't follow your drive into danger, which basically uh, drives, for those of you who don't know the uh, game system, basically are it's an insurance policy that uh, the GM can show the player when they're acting unlike a horror character. And then partway through, you can say, well, you, you do go into the house because you have a drive that sends you into the house. Why is it that your drive sends you into the house? And so that's something that can just be a rule or in different iterations has become more mechanical. So I think that's an interesting uh, example of that. There are, a rule can come into play without doing anything. It can just establish an expectation, whereas a, me a mechanic actually is something that you kind of break from the uh, storytelling portion of the game in order to uh, roll a die or flip a coin or look up something on a chart or whatever it is in your particular uh, system. And I guess one of the issues here is that the more space you spend in a game book presenting a rules mechanic, the greater expectation you present that that is going to come up a lot while you play. And that may not be the case. It may be an edge case that requires a bunch of complicated discussion if you're going to discuss it at all. But it may be... So as a designer, you might want to think about flagging uh, which rules you think are going to come up in every single session and which ones are, well, you're hardly ever going to need this, but once you do, here it is, um, which is also helpful uh, for people learning the rules. If you flag it that way, they can go, okay, well, um, on my first read of this rule set, I don't need to look at this. I do need to look at the, you know, the cattle drive rules uh, if I know that there's likely to be a cattle drive in tonight's session. And so that has an, an additional use of sort of not just managing expectations of what's going to happen in the game, but also helping you uh, through the process. So um, an example of that came up uh, the other week in my uh, drama system game, where an edge case in the procedural rules came up that isn't in the main book and was one that I hadn't considered and one that no one has ever asked me to provide in the couple of years that that game has been out. And perhaps everybody else has just figured out a way to do it on the fly, or perhaps this is the first time it had ever come up, which is there was a procedural where every character, every player character had a completely different goal as to what the outcome of this big magical uh, fight was going to be. The rules assume that there's either all the players against opposition or two factions of players, but this was basically 
you know, every man for himself. Every man for himself, and a couple didn't even know what they wanted going in. And <laughs> so I, you know, on the fly, came up with a, a rule system that I'm going to uh, release eventually as a page XX column. But if I had included that in the Hillfolk rules, that would have created the expectation, I think, that, oh, well, look, there's four pages of rules on how to do this. And I guess we have to make sure that this happens a lot. But the there's not necessarily a relationship between how long it takes you to explain something and how often it should actually come up uh, in a multi-session campaign. Yeah, the uh, sort of the, the relationship between book design and game design is one that maybe we can uh, put a pin in and come back to in another, in another version of The Hut. Uh, I do also want to point out that whether or not you have a lot of mechanics is irrelevant to whether or not the mechanics exist to serve the story or whether or not the game is emergent from those mechanics. Uh, a rules heavy game or even a multi-system or less elegant game can still entirely use its mechanics to serve the story as opposed to be uh, the, 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 the other side where story emerges from mechanical play. So if you look at something like Burning Wheel, which is very, very rules intense, but all of those rules exist deliberately to drive play and to drive story in a specific direction, as opposed to just being there because Luke says, well, we have to have ballista rules. I guess I'd better put them in or whatever, or, or is caught up in some Gygaxian frenzy of, of, um, uh, padding all the sides of the, of the billiard table. Uh, all of the rules in burning wheel are there specifically to drive a flavor and a type and a, and a sort of story. And they, they are there because, uh, they have been, you know, sort of, play tested into existence in a lot of cases by Luke and his, and his core burners. Uh, so I, I don't want, I don't want people coming away from the segment to think, Oh, all the simple happy games are the Robin kind and all the, uh, crunchy F20 games are the Ken kind. That's not the continuum we're talking about. And in fact, the more uh, modular a system is, uh, which suggests a layer of at least a sort of horizontal complexity, if not vertical complexity, the less it creates the expectation that everything should be used in your game, right? GURPS, you can't possibly use every GURPS subsystem in a GURPS campaign, much less a GURPS session. So if you end a, a session of GURPS only having used the rules you needed to do the things you wanted to do, I think it's rare for anyone to go, well, but uh, we didn't, we didn't use the uh, the item manufacturing rules this week. Uh, you might have someone say, I really like item manufacturing. Can we do some next week? But they're not going to feel that they got robbed of their GURPS experience by not having that particular bid in. Right. Yeah. A, a broad as opposed to deep rule set is also going to set up different expectations of play use, but it's still going to set up expectations because GURPS has item manufacturing rules. You may think, well, we can have just as much fun playing a bunch of guys who travel from town to town manufacturing items as we would playing a bunch of guys who travel from town to town stabbing uh, hobgoblins. And maybe that's the case and maybe it's not the case. And so you can wind up sort of creating a expectation through rules uh, demonstration or rules presentation of the possibility of story, of story potential, that the GM either has to sort of do a little more heavy lifting or that just isn't there because sort of the narrative background isn't there. We don't have a rich thousand multi thousand year history of stories of tinkers as opposed to stories of uh, swordsmen, right? Where we have much more to, to lean back on. Right. And there's the challenge of, you know, making that dramatic and giving it emotional ups and downs and, uh, and so forth. Uh, well, I think we've uh, chewed over this issue a bit and I guess our conclusions might be that as a designer, uh, you, might find it productive to uh, kind of manage expectations of not just here's this rule, but here's how heavy a footprint I expect this to have in your experience. And uh, just as in an adventure, a, a written adventure where you can actually do everything uh, and follow every possibility laid out in the adventure is actually a very linear adventure, which would be satisfying for some people and not for others, that a, a rule set where you uh, you know, use all of the mechanical systems all of the time uh, is not necessarily the, the goal you're shooting for. And so if not, you might want to create the expectation of, well, you know, this thing is going to come up all the time. This is an edge case. If this just exists merely as a rule, but never becomes a mechanic, that's cool too. It's doing its job. Uh, I guess that was a conclusion. So uh, let's conclusively head to a commercial and then our next hot.
The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters. Eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, uh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrain website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The ionic columns of the Louis XIV furniture, the pewter inkwells in which we dip our pens, tell us that we have entered the backward-looking, but by no means backwards, confines of the history hut. And this time, Ken is going to tell us, uh, as he has in the past, about a military conflict. And this is one that I have selected because it is the best-named war in military history. Now, there is a proviso there, which is that nobody called it this uh, during the actual war, which went from 1739 to uh, 1748, but rather the Victorian writer Thomas Carlyle in 1858, uh, more than 100 years later, came up with this really cool term for it. Uh, Thomas Carlyle uh, was the author of the great man theory of history and was an a fabulous Turner phrases. Yes, uh, he if, was you, the one, if you want a, your, your war to get a good name, let Thomas Carlyle name it. I think that's fair. Right. He was the one who came, uh, called economics the dismal science, uh, which uh, is even better named than, than this name for war. But this name for war is pretty darn good. And that's the War of Jenkins' Ear. It was uh, waged between England and Spain. Or technically between Britain and Spain by now, because uh, Scotland has been roped into England's uh, fold by this point. Ah, there we go. Okay, well, yes, the uh, there is a subsection of our listeners for who the England-Britain uh, distinction is very important. So I'm glad, I'm glad you cleared yes. that up. So uh, perhaps I guess the place to start, uh, before we get to the part with the ear in it, maybe <laughs> you want to lay the uh, sort of political and economic... Uh, background that uh, caused this war to uh, spark over an external head extremity. The background is that England and Spain, or Britain and Spain, had been fighting a whole bunch of wars over and over and over, basically because Spain had called dibs on the whole uh, Caribbean. Indeed, they'd called dibs on the whole New World, but by 1739, when the war began, they uh, they couldn't keep their dibs anything uh, north of Florida. If you dibs an entire hemisphere, someone's going to push back. Someone is going to push back. And if it turns out to be Britain, then you're going to get pushed. And that's just the way the world is. Uh, or was. Not anymore. Um, <laughs> now Britain will say, oh, well, you have dibs. Very well. And do nothing. But at that point, uh, there was there was feistiness and sea doggery afoot. And the British had, in previous wars, wrested what was called the asiento, the right to uh, sell uh, slaves in the Spanish colonies from Spain and wanted to keep that. Right. And hence the Spanish name for this conflict, which is the War of the Asiento. Yes. And so the, uh, the, the British could sail into Spanish waters and pretend that they had slaves and then traffic in anything else that they wanted to do. And the Spanish said, hey, that's not the deal. Uh, and we're going to board your ships and find out if you, if you are trafficking in slaves 
or in an illegal cargo. And this is, this is how magical the world is, uh, in the world of mercantilism. So don't, don't do mercantilism, kids. It doesn't end well. So anyway, um, the Spanish were boarding a bunch of British ships. The British were getting all stroppy. Uh, there was a, uh, a fellow named uh, Robert Walpole, who was uh, sort of the, the grand statesman who ran pretty much British foreign policy and much of British domestic policy. And he thought a war with Spain was expensive and stupid, but everyone would come sailing back and say, hey, how come Spain's being a jerk? And, and Walpole would say, well, well, it's it's not worth a, a war over. And it's like, yeah, hey, it's not your cargo that got seized. So there was a great deal. Of, of back and forth, and then Spain unilaterally abrogated the Asiento and said, if you can't just sell slaves, you can't sell anything, you're all fired. And that, of course, set off the entire merchant uh, colony in, in uh, London. And then, as now, if the London banks want something, the London banks get something. And they got war with uh, Spain. And that is uh, over uh, Robert Walpole's objections. Uh, the war was launched. And, uh, a bold British Navy set off to, uh, slap the, the bloody Spanish around in the Caribbean. And of course, immediately ran into the fact that, uh, it's very, very hard to conquer the whole Caribbean if you don't have anything larger than Jamaica. Uh, and it took them a great, uh, a great long time to discover that, um, capturing Portobello in Panama does you no good if you have to eventually leave Panama, which the British did. And of course, once they did, the Spanish would march back in and, build the fort back up. And so over the course of the war, which sort of ran until 1748, but about 1742, it became part of the larger war of the Austrian succession in which Britain was making war against the Austrian succession. Um, uh, they, they, uh, they, they moved the ships out of the Caribbean. And so the Caribbean became a, a secondary front, but from 1739 to 1742, uh, the Caribbean is the, is the big, uh, news that's going on in the war. Uh, uh, for for that period of time. Now, this is all well and good, our listeners are thinking, but where's the part where a severed ear gets displayed in British Parliament? It's a good question. And in fact, in boring, tiresome fact, which is why we have no truck with it on this show, um, <laughs> the ear may not have been displayed in Parliament. Um, this is one of those things where one suspects there was a there was a, 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 a fun story about it or a political cartoon, and then that fell into common parlance. Uh, we don't actually have the current records of that, uh, committee where uh, Robert Jenkins showed up to recount his tale of ear loss. Right. And, and who is Robert Jenkins? Uh, Robert Jenkins was the captain of the Rebecca. Uh, and it was a ship that was sailing into the Caribbean to illegally trade with Spain. And the Spanish boarded it off the coast of Florida. Uh, a fellow named Julio Leon Fandino, um, boarded it and then cut off Jenkins' ear for being a jerk and a pirate and a guy who traded uh, with the Spanish colonies. But this was no common sailorly ear. This was a captainly ear. This was a captainly ear, although Robert Jenkins was a merchant captain, so it's not quite the same thing. But uh, according to Jenkins, and I suspect not at all according to Fandinho, uh, Fandinho said, go and tell your king that I will do the same if he dares to do the same, which strikes me as so redolent with war propaganda, yes. uh, such a, a... Go tell your king that the pretext you've been looking for, for is here. Is now dripping in my hand yes. in the form of an in ear. In the form of an ear. And another thing. And he's a funny <laughs> guy who can't speak English well. And, and so that is what Jenkins, at least seven years later, told Parliament, or, or perhaps even said in the papers in 1731. And right. uh, So even if he didn't show his ear, yes. he presumably would have shown his absence. Right, he ear. would have shown his stump. That's good enough. His, his Van Goghish stump. And that would have, um, uh, and, and that did indeed provide, uh, the nation a clear casus belli along with the other examples of the Spanish saying, you can't trade with our colonies because, uh, we said so. Uh, which of course, why should the Spanish get to say who gets to trade with their colonies? That's crazy talk. And this is the sort of argument that will come back to bite the British <laughs> flash forward in about, uh, 40 years when the Americans say, speaking of getting to freely trade with people's colonies. <laughs> Right. And, uh, of course, you can't say on economic grounds our bankers want this war. But, you know, if you have a guy with no ear, there you go. There's the emotional impetus you need to uh, to, to launch this conflict that has uh, been uh, brewing all along. And in fairness, in um, 1738, a lot more of the people of London were directly connected to merchant trade overseas than necessarily are now. So if all the merchants are trying to sail to the Caribbean and getting ears lopped up or otherwise interfered with, it's a bigger deal in the population of London, which, of course, is all 
a huge number of shipwrights, shipbuilders, mariners, families, etc., than a modern day uh, British merchant captain sailing into the Caribbean and getting his ear cut off. That would not be as as big a deal, even if uh, the the London banks were also steamed about something, right? Right, because an emotional narrative that explains why you're going to have a war still doesn't work if nobody wants that war. Right, but yeah. if you've got a lot of influential people who uh, do for ideological slash economic reasons, uh, you do still need something at least as poetic as a lopped off ear. To, ideally, uh, yes. Ideally. Um, so what are the uh, repercussions of the War of Jenkins' Ear? Well, the main repercussion is that a guy named Lawrence Washington uh, goes down to, as far as I'm personally concerned, goes down to the Caribbean with 4,000 Virginians, one of the earliest uh, uses of uh, colonial troops overseas in the British military history, and also a guy named, um, I think it's Sir William Pepperidge, it's a Sir something Pepperidge, uh, or Pepperell rather, William Pepperell, uh, who leads a expedition of Massachusettsians up to take Louisbourg in uh, Cape Breton Island from the French. At the point at, in 1742 when the war is expanded, a Massachusetts regiment is formed and goes and sort of on its own hook decides to conquer Cape Breton Island and succeeds, uh, as does uh, Lawrence Washington's Virginians also succeed, although they are part of a larger force uh, under Admiral Vernon that does not actually succeed in uh, taking Cartagena. Um, so uh, Lord Vernon then, or Admiral Vernon then pulls uh, Lawrence Washington back out of the uh, Caribbean. Lawrence Washington, seeing his men all dying of uh, yellow fever and whatnot, uh, gets a, a, a very progressive for that time attitude towards inoculation against diseases if you can, which is why George Washington eventually has his men inoculated uh, because George Washington accompanies his half-brother Lawrence down to the Barbados and goes through smallpox and recognizes that that's a terrible thing to have happen. So Lawrence Washington winds up naming his house that he builds Mount Vernon after his buddy, uh, Admiral Vernon, the guy who sort of commanded in the War of Jenkins' Ear. He was the sort of guy who, if the Spanish weren't watching or weren't very strong, he could conquer a Spanish fort. But if he tried something big and important like Cartagena... Um, it just wasn't going to happen. And, uh, he, uh, again, he had the British Navy as opposed to the Spanish Navy, so he could win most ship to ship actions. But in terms of combined arms, either his reach exceeded his grasp or the Spanish in the new world by the 1740s were not the pushovers that they had been back in the glorious high pirate days of Henry Morgan. And so, uh, he was not able, for example, to turn, uh, the, the conquest of Portobello into anything long-term. So the longer-term re repercussions uh, in the New World were that the Spanish won, and the British were told to uh, peddle their papers somewhere else. The Asiento was formally uh, renounced by the Treaty of Madrid, and um, the British weren't able to take even a tiny little island like Antigua, much less big, important stuff like Venezuela. So if you're designing a time-watch scenario, what one moment of the War of Jenkins' Ear do you decide to drop the player characters into. I think if you're doing it as a time watch scenario, uh, it, a lot of it depends on whether you're doing it, uh, you're trying to design it to hook the players or whether you're designing it for maximum historical time watchliness. Because if you want to hook the players, again, Lawrence Washington at the Battle of Cartagena is a pretty good thing because it's like, oh, it's, it's Lawrence Washington. Maybe you put his half-brother George is along with him as a ship's boy or something, and you're like, hold on, that's not historically accurate. What's George Washington doing here in the Caribbean with a bunch of yellow fever and Spanish cannonballs when he should be at home playing with um, uh, uh, toy soldiers? And so you you can have a, an exciting little uh, what's going on there type thing and focus on uh, the Americans, who, of course, are the exciting part of all wars. Or often the inciting part. The inciting. It, it's the same thing, really. Um, if you're if you're looking for the um, uh, the, the sort of uh, temporal uh, balancey point, you might look at something like the invasion of Georgia by the Spanish. And the Spanish uh, go crossing over the St. Augustine River, and they go charging up into the colonies and attack the colony of Georgia. And uh, they're forced to withdraw by General Oglethorpe, who is the, the patron of Georgia. Um, his army of um, uh, regulars and prisoners and and, and problem children that, that is Georgia then and now uh, drive the Spanish back. But of course, if the Spanish take Georgia, then the next thing they go after is South Carolina. And since they do win the war, they have gotten to keep Georgia. And that 
would have had knock-on effects for America going forward. In Georgia man might be Florida man's big brother, for example. <laughs> uh, well, I think uh, now that we've handled the uh, the gamification, uh, we can uh, declare our little uh, venture into the war of Jenkins here uh, uh, well essayed and can move on to a commercial and then another segment. when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy. What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. The dark shadows, the spooky cobwebs, the black cats, and the eerie green faces leering at us out of the niches and crannies tell us we have entered the terrifying confines of the horror hut. And Robin, in this horror hut, as the sort of grotesqueries around us might imply, we're entering into the uh, deep teenage subconscious of horror. Am I right? And you want to talk because of our previous episode's call out to her in the Halloween episode uh, of Bloody Mary. Am I correct in divining your interests? Uh, yes, yes. So so uh, for those of you who uh, have not yet listened to our Halloween episode, uh, uh, A, listen to our Halloween episode, and B, uh, we talked about the um, really intriguing thing about the, the Bloody Mary myth. Um, well, why don't you start by just sort of recounting its its myth and its or urban legend, I guess it is now, or... Is, is an urban legend become a myth when it has magic in it? Or is that a whole other uh, taxonomy hut we don't want to get into? I think it's a myth when it explains a mystery about the universe. And it was never an urban legend per se, although it was a ritual around which urban legends accreted. Okay, so what's what's the current version of the, of the Bloody Mary? Uh, you know what, quote? I say that, but uh, real sociologists looked into the question of was it a ritual first or a myth first, and they couldn't answer that. So just my preference for it being a myth first and then a and a, a ritual first and then a myth is, is probably, uh, not, uh, meat here. Anyhow, the story goes that if you, and you in this case are a gaggle of preteen girls, go into, uh, the bathroom or another closed room with a mirror and you say into the mirror, uh, Bloody Mary, uh, a number of times and it might be three or seven or 13. Then on the 13th, uh, uh, repetition, the hideous face of Bloody Mary, a witch, will appear in the mirror, and blood uh, will be on her head, and she will reach out of the mirror and scratch your face. Or, if you are saying it alone, uh, she will kill you. And if you uh, say it when you are alone, but the rest of your friends are out there, then you will come out and your hair will be white and you will be covered in blood because of Bloody Mary's uh, horrible magic that she has done upon you. And there are variations of this, as you can tell from even that basic version uh, what happens to Mary? Who is Mary? Sometimes there's a local uh, uh, urban legend that's attached to it. It's like, oh, Mary was at the a patient at the old insane asylum who killed her baby, or Mary was a a, a woman who was um who who, who haunts the, the the old burial ground or or whatever it is, uh, and her name might be Mary Worth, 
uh, like the old comic strip, though it was not friendly, busybody Mary Worth will not come out of the mirror and kill you, uh, unless she's a Clark Kent level, um, uh, d- uh, dual personality. Um, or Mary Wales is another very common one that people will say Mary Wales as opposed to Mary Worth. But there's a bunch of different versions of it. And even in some cases, her name isn't, um, uh, Mary. It's, uh, uh, Kathy or, or Agnes if they've got, either a, a really strong, like a, a Scottish uh, tradition in the family. So they might be uh, thinking of one of the many uh, Black Annis-type hags that, that exists in Scottish lore, and that might have turned into Agnes in America or Annie uh, in America. Or there's another um, local, you know, woman who has lit, led a life of such murderiness that she has been dragged into uh, the ritual practice of uh, Bloody Mary catoptromancy or magical divination. Right, and that's where the, uh, the the shading from myth into urban legend uh, comes about when there is an attempt at verisimilitude by uh, creating a local backstory for Bloody Mary is one that makes it seem uh, more real and therefore more like an urban legend. And as you uh, also suggested, it does its roots are in an older ritual that was uh, practiced uh, around the 17th, 18th century in England and Scotland, where... Uh, in uh, Halloween activities, one of the main things that you wanted to uh, do was engage in divination if you were a young unmarried person and discover uh, the person that you might eventually marry. But the problem with calling on supernatural forces to tell you stuff is that sometimes these supernatural forces uh, have a different agenda, i.e. wanting to get out of the uh, supernatural realm and into your realm and uh, eat you or or frighten you or turn your hair white or whatever it is. So the uh, original version of this, or perhaps an earlier version, maybe there's even earlier version still, because as we discussed uh, in another segment, also in the Halloween about mirrors, uh, you know, mirrors have always been seen to be magical because they're, uh, you know, an illusion that anyone can uh, summon up. So, uh, you know, who knows what, where this originally started, but there's a, a continuity that you know, crosses a continent and uh, continues on into uh, modernity from uh, the thing that you used to want to do as a young person at a party, which is find out who you're going to marry, to what you want to do now at a party, which is, uh, you know, flirt with something scary that's like a communal bonding experience. Uh, So the the external forms of this ritual have remained uh, reasonably consistent, even though all of the explanatory matter around it have uh, changed. And this is big in pop culture now because the Bloody Mary myth uh, was yoked into the whole paranormal activity uh, franchise uh, as part of the current cycle of uh, quasi-documentary ghost and exorcism stories. So it's a a logical sort of ordinary mundane thing that you can uh, use as a uh, a trigger for the horror. Now, the, the thing about ghosts and haunted houses, as, as we've talked about before, or uh, sort of encounters uh, with Bloody Mary, is that uh, we need to do a little more in order to make her an interesting figure in a gaming scenario or a, a horror uh, story, because, you know, just simply recounting the urban legend in which someone emerges with white hair or gets their face scratched or indeed uh, even dies if they're foolish enough to go in and summon uh, Bloody Mary by themselves, isn't uh, quite enough narrative. So how would we go about fashioning a uh, scenario that would be uh, detailed and intense and uh, deep enough to engage a group of uh, semi-competent player characters? Well, I think that the, the, the sort of the thing that turns Bloody Mary from a uh, awesome uh, urban legend teen ritual, whatever you want to call it, and I should, before we uh, leave the world of fact too far behind, I should mention that Alan Dundas did a pretty good and pretty convincing study of Bloody Mary in which he uh, turns it from a ritual into a myth explaining menstruation, that it's a menstru- uh, premenstrual ritual that is done to, you know, the, the connection of preteen girls, darkness and blood is not super impossible to uh, to notice once you notice it. And the fact that it Alan Dundas is the first folklorist to notice it as kind of an indictment of folklore as a, as a academic field, frankly. But, um, it's a really good essay and if you, and you can find it online. So go check it out. Anyway, um, the thing that you want to do with the Bloody Mary to make it a full on story as opposed to a cool thing that you tell people in the dark 
is to have the specific Mary that appears be something that the player characters can uh, uncover, confront, and destroy in the classic horror um, uh, story pattern, right? That there's the area, maybe it's the hometown of the player characters, depending on what kind of game you have, or it's an area where they're, you know, occult investigations have discovered that every night, you know, every uh, 10 years, young girls, or one young girl dies in the sort of supernatural Call of Cthulhu type model. And so they go to that town where people keep dying and they find out that, yes, indeed, that girl had been playing Bloody Mary with her friends in the in the bathroom mirror. And they have to figure out what is this specific Mary. And as I sort of gave away a little bit, um, she might be the the Black Annis of, uh, of Celtic uh, uh, legendary and, and monster lore. Or she might be an actual witch from the area who was uh, hung or beheaded or or uh, or bloodied perhaps in some fashion by a lynch mob, or she might be a woman who died in a car crash and is trying to um, trade her life uh, for that of, of a young teen girl. And once she finds the right young teen girl, she can come out of the mirror and live the rest of her life. And so it's sort of a, a dark, horrible uh, ghost whisperer type story. So the, the goal is to figure out what's going on with Mary. And then how do we, player characters stop her do we you know find her bones and dig them up and and burn them do we go into the mirror and fight her in a crazy mirror world of magic and horror do we you know uh just magic the mirror is it the mirror that's haunted like in oculus or what's the what's the way that we the player characters can fix it and i think in most cases it's going to wind up being something about mary <laughs> uh how long did you have that in the, in the always chamber? there my friend i've always got a loaded gun right uh, and one satisfying thing that you can do when you're uh, dealing with an urban legend in a horror scenario is it starts off seeming to be the ordinary urban legend, and then it turns out uh, to be something else, right? So that, uh, you know, in a fear itself or esoteric scenario, it could be that there's a um, demon from the uh, outer dark that is sort of uh, in keeping with the whole menstruation idea that is basically feeds off of young girls' uh, fear of uh, sexuality and pregnancy and... Uh, and that it's something that, uh, you know, once it gets out into the, uh, into the world, it might, uh, rather than attacking the, uh, the girl who, uh, helped summon it, the girl might be the focus and anyone who creates, uh, her, her sense of anxiety about her sexual awakening might be the thing that the, uh, roving Bloody Mary creature, uh, might attack. And so the challenge in that investigation is, you know, what is it that connects all of these, uh, victims? And then you find that they're all, connected to the girl and then you have to sever uh, her relationship uh, to this uh, demon another uh, thing other than bloody mary that the bloody mary could be is a vampire that uh, we know that vampires can't be their reflections can't be seen in mirrors but perhaps once a uh, powerful female vampire is killed maybe she can then only be seen in a mirror and if she wants to cross back into the world that she has to have this summoning ritual performed and that then allows her to escape from the mirror, uh, bite her victim and turn turn them into thralls and then you've got this um, group of uh, preteen mean girls who are secretly being manipulated by the uh, vampire who is you know back in the world but not uh, doesn't have quite enough blood to do things herself so that the uh, girls are basically all her uh, you know, 12 and 13 year old Renfields running around doing the things necessary to uh, fully uh, reincarnate her. Yeah. Uh, once you start thinking, you know, who can it be, then you either wind up deciding uh, that it's Mary or you then have to sort of change it up again and that it's not actually Mary. It's actually the mirror or it's actually the mom at the house who or the or the den mother, maybe who, you know, or the or the um it, it, because the movies being movies don't usually do Bloody Mary stories about 12 year olds who are the people who actually do it. They do it about nubile teenagers who are more interesting and legal to, to watch on film. And so you, you move it to a sorority or you move it to a dorm. And so it's a dorm RA or a dorm mom who is the person who has been moving around town or around the, the country, um, uh, setting these, uh, uh, Bloody Mary activities off, right? Right. You could also do a, a MacGuffin hunt scenario in a uh, world of, of modern magic where the mirror that manifests a Bloody Mary, even if after the man manifestation has uh, been taken care of, it still now has resonant properties because it has, uh, you know, crossed between worlds and it's uh, still an interdimensional portal. And if you 
uh, if the bad magicians get a hold of it, there's this terrible thing that they can do. And so your job is to uh, get and smash the mirror before they can uh, use it in the uh, ritual. Or you could even go further in the idea that uh, legends are, are connected to particular people. It could be that, uh, and this is getting away from the, you know, you might have an early Bloody Mary reference and then find it's in a completely different direction where you might discover that mirrors in general that uh, catch the reflection of someone when they are in a, uh, when they die, then trap their souls and that you are, uh, you know, assembling a bunch of these different mirrors. So you've got a, uh, you know, a mirror that was in a nursing home and somebody passed away. And then you've got the rear view mirror of a car that, uh, where someone had a fatal accident and the evil magicians are gathering up all of these mirrors because they're all receptacles of, uh, of soul energy. And you could even just use that as a cool little detail in a, a modern magic game that is otherwise not about getting the mirrors, but it can just be something that even your player character, uh, has, uh, you know, on, her person in her trench coat, she's got this piece of the rear view mirror from a, a car that was where someone had a fatal accident, and that's uh, part of a reflection of her power and something that she can draw on for extra magic points. And the other thing that you can have uh, Bloody Mary be doing rather than driving people crazy or, or slashing at their face or whatever else, although that might be the way that she sort of terrifies you and gets into your soul, is that like the weird sisters in Macbeth, Bloody Mary is telling a girl that in order to have romantic success or whatever other kind of success she wants, she has to go out and kill people or whatever. And so it's sort of like a dark version of the Snow White magic mirror where the Wicked Queen is like, hey, magic mirror, am I the fairest in the land? And the mirror is like, well, everyone except for that young girl who's vulnerable and powerless. Eh? Um, so uh, there may not even be a uh, any more you know, bloody murder done than, are, than can be done by the average uh, teen girl. But she is being invited to it by this uh, divinatory uh, magic mirror spirit, right? And so it's not a ghost or a demon per se. It's just a, a thing inside the mirror that wants people killed. And for more sort of a satirical weird modern weirdness game, you could have the idea that uh, the fear is of uh, conformity. So that, uh, you know, this is a group ritual that uh, the girls undergo together. So it might be that, you know, you are uh, the protagonist character who is... Uh, rolling her eyes at the idea of this ritual. And then all of a sudden, you know, your friends go into the bathroom and then one by one they come out and they haven't been killed. They haven't been scratched. Their hair isn't white. But rather, suddenly they're just more boring conformist consumers. <laughs> and they all suddenly like, uh, you know, Justin Bieber more. And they all want to have this particular brand of, of toothpaste. And they all uh, buy this uh, particular brand of uh, nail polish. And it turns out that someone has found a way to yoke the Bloody Mary meme into a supernatural marketing campaign that uh, turns everybody into the perfect consumer for their demographic, and that you then have to uh, discover what's going on and then head down to corporate headquarters to uh, find the marketing demon uh, that has been responsible for uh, perverting this perfectly great uh, urban uh, legend of, of fear imagery into uh, something far more sinister, and that's a subliminal advertising campaign. And as you know, once we enter the, the territory of Josie and the Pussycats, we enter a territory brought to you by one of our fine sponsors. And then to another hut. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolsey frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as 
Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention, Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid Zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, and this time in Ask Ken and Robin, uh, Rob Deet asked Ken and Robin a question that has a component that challenges the auditory uh, nature of the podcast and medium. And in other words, he has a a visual aid because he's going to ask us to, well, let me read what he's going to ask us to do. Uh, I wonder if you guys might like to do a nerd trope riff on this found object from my stamp collection. And uh, when you check this out uh, in the show notes, you will see that uh, we have photos of both sides of what is basically sort of a postcard uh, work requisition. It's a form message sent to Mr. A. Ambrosius in 1911 when he was overseeing the digging of piping test pits in the city of Baltimore. Given that Baltimore has evocatively named regions such as Druid Hill and Avalon Hill, and therefore an Arthurian connection, and that Merlin is often Merlinus Ambrosius, something must have been going on that caused Merlin to be in charge of digging up Baltimore in 1911. Now, I would say that uh, Rob has pretty much done all of our work for us here. We yeah, can just... Rob is kind of, you know, Rob, this was more of an Ask Ken and Robin, aren't I clever? And yes, you are. You are clever, Rob Dean. We agree with you. Noticing A. Ambrosius was Merlin, that's that's the kind of thing that we usually spin out to take 15 minutes, and here you've done it in, you know, the, the question. So, fortunately, I went and found a, a sketch map of Baltimore from 1911, or rather a hand-drawn map. It's not a sketch at all. It's very beautiful. It's a gorgeous perspective, uh, sort of uh, bird's-eye view perspective map. Exactly. And so, if, if this inspires our players, uh, our listeners, to uh, game in Baltimore, which we also did in the... Halloween episode. This has been our Halloween flashback episode. Right. And and commenters mentioned uh, in response to the Halloween episode that we talked about Baltimore without mentioning Druid Hill. So perhaps this is a, a cosmic uh, uh, A cosmic throwback or, or, or yeah. slapback or some kind of back. But anyway, uh, we, we have that up in the show notes as well. So, uh, Robin, do you, uh, do, do we want to just praise Rob Dean's cleverness for another 12 minutes or do you have, uh, more to, uh, to nerd trope on this, uh, exciting, uh, postcard, which if his theory is right, I point out has Merlin's initials on it because it's initialed AMB in pencil down in the bottom there. So right there, you've got a card with Merlin's initials that you could probably use as the focal point of all manner of magic that would get you into a great deal of trouble. Right. So I guess rather than the nerd trope, this, this, as Rob suggests, comes pre nerd troped. Uh, what you can do is uh, figure out how you could possibly use it as the seed for an adventure. And so, uh, first of all, that can just be the MacGuffin itself. As you suggest, it's got um, actual Merlin's handwriting on it. And so in uh, whatever era you are, you are handed this uh, this uh, postcard, and it's like, here's here's a, uh, a psychic link to Merlin. We know he was active in 1911, and this is a premise that works whether you're playing in the 20s or the 30s or the modern day, and we need you to, to use this postcard to home in and find out where Merlin is now. We knew that he was in uh, Baltimore in 1911, but uh, well, we need you to find him now because we need his um, magic to accomplish X or, or Y or Z or whatever your organization wants. Uh, you know, they want the Philosopher's Stone or they uh, want remote sensing of uh, uh, targets in Syria or whatever uh, the, your scenario hook is. And so the next step is you are the player characters and you're given this, uh, where do you start the investigation? And while you know he was in Baltimore in 1911, you know it's got this uh, uh, Arthurian series of names to it. Uh, we also know that, of course, the main thing about the uh, Arthur legend is that he's coming back, and he's coming back uh, from a cave or a hole in the earth. So uh, they've looked all over England for Arthur, so maybe at some point he uh, headed across the Atlantic, and perhaps he's somewhere under Baltimore. Maybe that's the 
uh, either the big surprise that you encounter when you head to Baltimore to look for the trace of Merlin, you realize that really it's about Arthur coming back. And you know, first of all, that Arthur only comes back if things are in really, really bad shape. Well, what if Arthur comes back and he's not all himself and he's uh, gone weird in the head and he turns out to be the antagonist that you have to battle? Another thing you can do is you can use the uh, the postcard as a clue and you can either have stuff in mind or you can give it if your player characters of a certain maniacal inventive sort. You give them the the side B of the postcard, which just lists all the locations of the test pits, right? The five men test pit, which is not mysteriously soundy cool at all. And then each of those uh, five pits has a location. And the first one is uh, the first two are the same location, apparently, because there are ditto marks. And that one, I will start you off, is south of Abbott, east side of Bond. And of course, that is a reference to Glastonbury Abbey and the psychic archaeological work of Frederick Bly Bond, who was going around Glastonbury, finding mystical evidences of Merlin and Arthur and Lancelot and Guinevere and all those guys and uh, magic druid power and such like. And so we know that uh, south of Abbott, east side of Bond is actually a reference to a place in Glastonbury. And so you can tear off to Glastonbury and that's where one of the clues is or one of the, the bits of, of Merlin's personality might be stored if you're trying to restore the, the full Merlin for wh whatever reason. And then once you've set that up, then you let the players figure out what um, uh, ALW of spring, ALS of monument is. Spring and monument could be any number of things. And then monument east of J or gay. I'm not sure what it is in Baltimore, but let's say it's J so that you have a bigger, uh, broader number of things. There's a monument and a J and that could be anything. And then Barnes and Hopkins, uh, will wind up being like names that you begin to sort of piece together. And these are NPC names. And then you can either have other NPCs named, uh, after the, 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 the dig foreman, Heinrichs, Fulkowski, Carr, and Bastianelli, or you can say that those are cabalistic code and just make up what they mean with a random code roll. Uh, by the um, uh, party cryptographer or party cabalist, and you can just give them an arbitrary name just like real cabalists do. So I think that that can, can provide a lot of good fun as well. I want to go back to the idea of uh, uh, Arthur coming back and not being who you seem, and possibly what Merlin knows is that at the last minute, uh, Mordred snuck in and uh, possessed Arthur or took over his, uh, you know, jumped in the magic uh, uh, pod that it was... Uh, analogous to uh, Excalibur being stuck in the stone. And so he knows that when uh, Mordred, who's been stewing in his magical juices for uh, a, a millennia, uh, comes out that that's really bad news. And so these shafts that he's been uh, digging into Baltimore are basically an attempt to uh, anchor uh, Mordred and, and create, uh, in addition to the site at Glastonbury, he's trying to create a mystical a resonant alternate version of uh, Glastonbury so that uh, if Mordred ever comes out, he's going to come out both in Glastonbury and in Baltimore. Now you would think, oh, well, you don't want two Mordreds, but they're each just a half Mordred. Right. And so yeah. uh, that diminishes them and makes them uh, easier to get at. And uh, therefore you could have one of those situations where the investigators uh, stumble onto the situation that, uh, uh, you know, they inadvertently, uh, in true horror fashion, look into things that they weren't meant to know and start messing with these uh, pilings, uh, these mystical shafts driven in the earth to create the uh, confusing reflection that will bisect Mordred when he comes back. And so the uh, since we've got a lot of immortality in this story, it turns out it could be that all of those foremen who are named uh, are still alive and are guarding uh, the different uh, mystical pilings and that uh, if you interfere with them, they do their best using... Uh, the powers of their own uh, nascent immortality to stop you. But if you mess with the piling, then you, you kill off these guys. They crumble to dust. And so uh, once you uh, uh, release Mordred, uh, he may have a story to tell you. If you're in Baltimore, he's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm Arthur. But, uh, you know, uh, Mordred is also going to manifest now in Glastonbury. You'd better uh, get me over there and I can fight. Uh, Mordred and destroy him, as of course you never could. And so the question then becomes, how long does it take for the uh, player characters to realize that uh, that it's Mordred 
uh, taking them to other Mordred in hopes of uh, unifying, and what do you do to, to stop that from happening? And then I should point out that uh, we have the example that Mordred and Arthur stabbed each other with their swords at Camlan, right? And they both died with their heart's blood pumping out onto the other one's sword, which is a great vector, I guess, for the transference of their personalities into each other's bodies. And so that's why it's actually Mordred that tells Sir Bedivere, make sure you throw the sword in water so it can float <laughs> to Baltimore or wherever, or, or, or be, you know, carefully insulated so that I can come back and get it. And so if it's Mordred giving Arthur, uh, Arthur's last words, that sort of throws the whole end of the, of the, of the, of, of the Mort into question and makes it sort of more exciting. And you can then make things up and say, Oh, nope, that was Mordred messing with you. And uh, maybe half Mordred has been alive ever since because he got resurrected immediately and he's been waiting for the other half of him to come out. And only Merlin, uh, who keeps moving the, the goalposts, if you will, or the, or the, um, the, the pilings, um, is, is, uh, keeps hiding him from place to place. I do want to point out that Lord Baltimore, the guy who founded Maryland, also founded a colony called Avalon in Newfoundland and then went and spent a winter in Newfoundland and said, that's a stupid place for a colony. I also own Maryland. I'm going to move all of my Arthurian stuff down there. And so, although the city there is not named uh, Avalon, it is named Baltimore after him. Um, he probably, if he's uh, in league with all of this Arthurian hoopty-doo, that is, because he's alive right at the tail end of the Jacobian era, um, when the, the last bit of the, of the Shakespearean Elizabethan Arthurian wave is receding. He might have been sort of one of those last Arthurian guys, a, a uh, 17th century Sir Bedivere, if you will. And he moved all of the stuff out of a Britain that was now run by filthy Stuarts into um, uh, the, the new land, the, the new world, uh, just like Arthur carried across uh, the lake to Avalon. Calvert thought that it would uh, be good to have a place where Christianity uh, could find refuge in the new world. That would be a, a colony for Catholics and nonconformists, which, in fact, is what Maryland was. And uh, when Mordred comes back, his initial goal, of course, was to be uh, king of England. While well, he looks around, he says, I don't want to be uh, Charles. That doesn't seem like uh, the position of authority it uh, would have been back in my day. So he decides to uh, become prime minister. So the other half Mordred has been working, uh, creating all of the, the mechanisms of power to allow him to uh, slide in and uh, rise to power at the head of uh, uh, one of the uh, major parties. And uh, so you can have that sort of uh, modern day political uh, intrigue. If you fail to, to uh, uh, take him out, then you've got to deal with the fact that he's got all of this uh, temporal power that he's using in order to, uh, does he want to bring magic back or does he want to be the only guy who has any magic, but he's uh, probably um, up to no good. So I think that we've uh, spun an entire uh, campaign rather than a nerd trope out of these found objects and can thus uh, uh, pronounce ourselves uh, kings, co-kings of this podcast, and can therefore go off and uh, revel uh, with some... Uh, we can eat everything off the left side of the royal menu. There we go. Uh, so uh, join us uh, next week for another exciting episode. Thanks for listening. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrin Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Support our podcast three times into the mirror by hitting the donate button at KennethRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Watch out for our Patreon coming in the new year. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.